It's Monday, December 24th, Christmas Eve. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Every year, millions of Americans head to Christmas tree lots to pick out that perfect tree. But have you ever stopped and wondered how that tree got there? Of course not. What you may not know is that researchers are working to bring you better trees every year and avoid the dreaded coning. Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer at Wired, joins us for the science of growing the perfect tree. Next, collectible toy values are on the rise. Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the rising collectible market and the 20-year rule. That means start looking for your Power Rangers and Harry Potter toys. We will also tell you what the holy grail of toys is so you can start looking. Finally, a Christmas classic is again facing controversy and being called out for some of the lyrics. Some radio stations in the US and Canada have removed Baby It's Cold Outside from their holiday playlists because some say that the song is about a man coaxing his date to stay despite her wanting to leave. My producer Miranda joins us to discuss how the public perception has changed about this Christmas standard. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. get a tree with lots of cones on it, people don't buy it. It's a wasted tree from an economic standpoint, from a tree farmer standpoint. That's a tree they can't use. Joining us now is Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer for Wired. We're going to be talking about Christmas trees. It's so amazing how much science actually goes into getting the perfect Christmas tree. When we go to a Christmas tree lot, you know, we're not thinking of anything of that sort. We're looking, hey, it's got to have the right shape. It's got to have the right color. Is it going to fit in through my doorway and whatnot? But there's so much that goes behind it. And you wrote a great article for Wired about the science that goes behind it. Tell us a little bit about all this stuff and how researchers are working to get us the perfect Christmas trees. It's interesting. A lot of the things that people pay attention to when they go to pick up trees, they are actually the same kinds of things that scientists think about when they are trying to decide the best ways to raise trees in large numbers on Christmas tree farms and also to breed them, so looking at the genetics of those trees. And there are things like, as you said, the color of the tree, there's something called needle retention, which is literally how many needles stay on the tree as opposed to how many of them wind up covering the gifts underneath. There's things like the color, and then of course the overall health of the tree. These are all things that some scientists can actually test for. I spoke with one researcher His name is Bert Craig, and he's a forest scientist at Michigan State University, and he does work on something called cold hardiness, basically how resistant are trees to really, really cold temperatures, the kind of thing that can cause them to become less healthy or even die over the course of eight, nine, ten seasons, which is the typical age of a Christmas tree. And that experiment actually involves plucking little sprigs from experimental trees and sticking them in a freezer and slowly lowering the temperature of that freezer and pulling out sprigs every few degrees Celsius, and then seeing at which point they start to turn color. And the idea is, if you find trees that can resist colder temperatures, then the farmers who grow these trees in large numbers can produce better yields, better looking trees, and get you a better looking tree every year. It takes about 10 years for a tree to fully mature that you can take to a lot so you can buy and put it in your your home. And these trees are growing about one foot per year, and obviously going through the seasons, going through the cold climate, and they need these resilient trees to be able to last that long. If they're not making it that long, then they're just useless and you're wasting time and resources. Another one that they uh, really focus on, too, is uh, how you fertilize these things. And it was uh, interesting that you noted in the article that old farmers used to over-fertilize these things. And it have a, a number of different effects where it would affect the groundwater and whatnot. And through 
these kind of analysis, we're able to figure out, you know, you don't need to fertilize them that much, fertilize each tree and you save time, money and uh, don't affect the groundwater that way. Talk to us about coning this. And this involves pine cones growing on the tree, which in Christmas trees is a bad thing. You don't want pine cones on this tree. So talk to us about the process with that. Coning is literally just like it sounds, the appearance of pine cones on a tree. Now, in nature, fir trees, for example, they typically start showing cones after they hit about 15 years old. But on farms, and what's interesting is researchers aren't even really sure why this happens, but in farming scenarios, fir trees will sprout cones much, much earlier than that, after maybe three or four years. The thing is, these cones do not what's called persist. Every season, they sprout, they mature for a little bit, and then they dry out and they shatter and they get all over the tree. And that doesn't look good. If you get a tree with lots of cones on it, people don't buy it. It's a wasted tree from an economic standpoint, from a tree farmer standpoint. That's a tree they can't use. So coning is a problem. A bigger problem is how you address it. So a typical fir tree can sprout hundreds of cones every year. A big one might sprout a thousand. If you're looking at fir trees and something like 90% of fir trees grown commercially in the U.S. experience coning, that's millions of trees sprouting hundreds to thousands of cones apiece. You're looking at potentially billions of cones that need to be plucked by hand every year. That's a huge time cost, right? right? That's a huge expense for these farmers. That's so crazy. I don't think anybody really realizes that that's part of what goes into growing these trees and, and making sure they're ready for that Christmas tree lot. That is so much work. It's so much work without anything. It's just, it's incredible. Finally, just to move on real quick, talk to us about this other thing called the Collaborative for Germplasm Evaluation Project. And this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all about getting new trees so that they don't get affected by something called root rot. We've been talking a lot so far about what are called culture techniques. Basically, how can you adjust your farming practices to improve the output of your tree? One thing we haven't talked about yet is the genetic side of things. And on the genetics front, one of the most ambitious projects related to Christmas trees is this project called COFERGE, and that's short for Collaborative Fur Germplasm Evaluation Project. And that is this multi-institutional nationwide effort to identify, among other things, new species of fir tree for the Christmas tree market, between 30 and 40 species of fir trees around the world. The exact number depends on who you ask, and I won't get into that. But only a small handful of those are currently grown for the North American Christmas tree market. And two of the most popular trees are particularly susceptible to this thing called root rot. It's caused by a water mold and a tree that comes down with it can die in a matter of days. So it's a big problem in America's biggest tree growing states. But in Turkey, there are fir trees that are resistant to root rot. So right now, one of the goals of the Coferge project is to grow Turkish fir trees in Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Washington, I think Oregon's in there. I'm probably missing a couple. But one of the goals of the project is to see how adaptable these trees are in different U.S. climates. And the goal is to find, you know, if this tree can be resistant to root rot and it can survive in North American climates, maybe we could have a new kind of Christmas tree down at the lot. All those states you mentioned, the top three growers of trees are Oregon, Michigan, and North Carolina. So yeah, it would be very beneficial for them to get something like that where they're saving trees. They don't have to plant as much. Uh, the trees will last longer for them. So it's just incredible to think of how little we really think as consumers about this stuff, but there's so much going behind it. And you really got to think these are all trees are 10 years in the making. So by the time you're picking it, this has already been a decade in the making for you. Robbie Gonzalez, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
You rip it open to play with the toy, and so the box is actually as rare or more rare than a lot of the rare toys because they just get discarded. And 20 years later, you know, you have a toy, but you don't have a box. Joining us now is Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for The Wall Street Journal. Collectible toys. Values are on the rise for these things. It's not just Star Wars. It's a lot of other stuff. Let's start from the top. What makes a toy collectible? And tell us about the 20-year rule. The 20-year rule is actually something I also uh, learned about when I was reporting this. It makes sense in that when you were a kid, you play with a toy, you love that toy, you eventually forget about that toy. 20 years later, you have money, you have maybe a job, a relationship, everything else you want in life, but you've forgotten about that toy. And so people oftentimes are oddly buying their childhood back by going back and trying to remember all the things they had. So how big is the potential to make money on this stuff? You know, when you're a kid, obviously, like you said, you you know, you beg your parents and it's a waste of money at some point. And now that we're older, we can buy these things for ourselves. We want to collect them. We want to have fun with them. But what's the market like? The market is kind of what you make of it. It's really difficult to make money buying and trading toys unless you make it a full-time job. It's kind of like everything. A lot of times, the better thing is just to kind of choose what you like. If you're a He-Man guy, if you're a Batman guy, if you're a Superman guy, just buy the things that you like and kind of surround yourself with the with the things you enjoy. And occasionally, if other people like them, they'll rise in value as well, and, and you can trade them off and sell them however you want at that point. But, you know, a lot of the guys I talked to, it was all about the collection. It wasn't really about the money. Even the guys who owned comic stores and did actually make a living off of this, a lot of the times it was kind of secondary to the fact that they just had all these things that they like surrounding themselves with. We always hear phrases like mint condition in the box. Why is the box such an important thing with collectibles? The fact that the box kind of guarantees the condition of the toy is obviously important. But what was really interesting that I came across when I was reporting this out was that James Gallo, who's the owner of Toy and Comic Heaven in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, who's also an avid collector himself, had kind of explained that the box is the thing that gets thrown away. You rip it open to play with the toy. And so the box is actually as rare or more rare than a lot of the rare toys because they just get discarded. And 20 years later, you know, you have a toy, but you don't have a box. There is as much or more nostalgia tied to the box. You know, it's about Christmas morning. You maybe didn't get that thing you want. And all of a sudden your parents are like, oh, what is this surprise gift we found behind the sofa? And they bring it out and you shred it open. And the first thing you see is that Optimus Prime or whatever it is staring back at you through the plastic. And that becomes a very important moment sometimes much more so even than actually bashing the toys together. Here's the big question, and everybody perk your ears up right now. (laughs) What toys are heating up right now? What are the things that are getting hot and increasing in value? One of the toys that's, that's heating up right now that was really interesting to me was these vintage Star Wars figures from the Droids animated series. And I don't know if you're familiar with this. I certainly wasn't. No. And I'm a Star Wars nerd myself. But it was a 1985 animated series starring R2-D2 and C-3PO together on their own adventures. Um, it lasted... <laughs> oh, so that sounds very exciting, actually. <laughs> it was very w- weird uh, at best. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. It only lasted 13 episodes. I can't imagine why. And so the toys from that series have kind of just sprung up oddly again recently as something that people are kind of chasing, partially because they're so rare and obscure, but also just because they're unique, they're interesting, and they're just kind of this untapped part of the Star Wars universe. Um, You know, other things, Power Rangers are huge right now because we've hit that 20, 25-year mark. I had all the Power Rangers. Oh, man, I I had a ton of these things, (laughs) but I have no more boxes. I probably have like an old 
crate full of Power Rangers toys that are not well kept. So yeah, <laughs> they're not worth anything, but I had the same thing. I had a ton of these things. Yeah, I, that was the one that stuck out to me the most. Just like, man, that, that could have been something. My Little Pony bronies and everybody else are are bringing those back (laughs) harry Harry potter was an interesting one yeah harry potter is interesting because that's another one that's hitting that 20 year point there are a lot of toys and and i you know i'm not a harry potter person i I never really read the books um i was never really a fan of the movies but people who like the toys and who played with them as kids are reaching that age sorry to, to kind of diverge but another part about this is the relevance harry potter has been relevant for 20 years right, right. it's not just that it existed and then it came back harry potter has you know we've had our movies we've had our books we've had our toys we've had a spin-off series at this point and so that that amount of relevance really matters to the toy being important as well because it's not only rising and falling in value it is just consistently going up because the toy and the, and the property the ip never goes away What are ones that we should not waste our time on? You know, the Funko Pops. The Funko Pops are really losing value for a couple of reasons. One is just that there's no play value. You just kind of put them on a shelf and you stare at them and you're like, well, those are nice. Right. And then you walk away. Uh, The other part is that there's just too many of them. Yeah, they're, they're making them for every single genre and movie and everything. There's this weird balance with collecting. When there's too many of something, you just can't collect them all, so you feel defeated. And when there's too few of something... You can't collect anything, so you feel defeated. And so there really is kind of an interesting groove that these toy lines have to hit to kind of catch that wave and really blow up. Last question I have for you. What is the holy grail of collectible toys? And it was funny because uh, reading your article, it's a death trap is really the most highly sought after thing. Yeah, the the kind of holy grail, the white whale, kind of whatever you want to call it, is this Boba Fett toy that came with this rocket firing backpack. And apparently because it was a choking hazard, it never got released. Yet somehow these prototypes kind of fell out into the world and, and these people picked them up and, you know, they trade at astronomical rates. The last one that went on sale, I believe it was in March, sold for more than $86,000. The fact that it's Star Wars obviously really elevates it. The fact that it's Boba Fett, I think, elevates it. And the fact that it is just this incredibly rare and obscure really sends it out of the stratosphere. Matthew Kitchen, gear and gadgets editor for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'll take your hat. Your hair looks swell. I ought to say no, 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 Mind sir. if I move in closer? At least I'm going to say that I try. What's the sense of hurting my pride? I really can't Oh, stay. baby, don't hold out, baby. Oh, it's cold outside. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to be talking about this controversy about the Christmas song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. It's getting a lot of backlash. Some radio stations have banned the song from their playlist. Listeners have, in turn, demanded it back. The conversation about this song has been going on for some time. But this year, a Cleveland radio station pulled the song from its Christmas rotation due to the controversial lyrics. Some other stations, one in San Francisco, one in Colorado, followed suit. And then there was the backlash. The conversation continues is people were calling Baby, It's Cold Outside a date rape anthem. <laughs> and it get pretty crazy. So let's talk about these stations and the backlash that they got. The program director for one of the stations explains that people are unbelievably passionate about their Christmas music, saying it's the one thing you really don't want to mess with because people listen to it and reminisce about their childhood or just the good times associated with the songs. And so while people are sensitive and 
some are even upset by some of the lyrics. The majority of listeners have expressed that they don't find the song offensive and that they're offended that the stations pulled it in the first place. In Colorado, they pulled it, then they did an online poll, and they found that 95% of people wanted the song to come back. In Cleveland, the first station that banned the song, at first they had a poll and people overwhelmingly supported the band. But then after that, after the controversy started rolling again, (laughs) then they said, okay, no, we want it back. So yeah, I think part of the problem is, is that we as a society have changed. Some of these songs don't hold up. Back then in 1944, when the song was originally written, people said it was just a fun little back and forth, that cat and mouse game be- between a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. And it was fine back then, but that's not the case anymore in the in the Me Too movement. Everyone points to the one lyric where she says, say what's in this drink. Oh, right. And we looked up the lyrics to the song and actually found a professional analysis of what that line really means. And it says back in 1944, when someone would say, say what's in this drink, it wasn't alluding to you know, Bill Cosby style quaaludes or he's secretly giving her alcohol. It's more of like she's trying to change the conversation by asking the question about what she's drinking. Right. It's not, hey, I'm not a hook up with you on the couch. It's, hey, what's in this drink? You know, what am I drinking? (laughs) The song was written in 1944 by Frank Lesser of Guys and Dolls fame. This song actually won an Oscar when it was a Neptune's daughter. Mm -hmm. It's been around a long time and people love this old song. Some have even tried to defend it saying it's a feminist song in disguise. Because, I can see that point though. Because back then women were supposed to be very demure mm-hmm. and, and, you know, not to be, if you were single, you couldn't stay over a man's house. And this was also kind of a, of a way to fight back on that front. Right. He's trying to give her the excuse of why it's okay for her to stay with him in the sense that it's so cold. It's not even worth trying to go home. It's so late. Just, you might as well stay. It's safer if you stay here. I mean, this is part of a trend where we're going back over old songs and picking and choosing little things and making it into something else. This song no longer holds up. They don't age very well. Let's start banning them again. You can see it on that front. There are moments of this song where it seems like he's coercing her to stay against her will. But other people have said she obviously wants to stay. It's just these social norms that she's fighting. People are all over on this. But I think overwhelmingly, it's a classic Christmas song. And as by some of these polls, a lot of people just say, hey, don't mess with it. I want to keep it. Yeah. But the bigger question is, what's the message it's sending to younger people and children, especially when trying to consider the thought about consent and no means no. Right. Exactly. Even and in the song, she says no, no, no. A couple times. She's asking for her coat and he's saying, hey, touch my hand instead. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not the only song that had some controversy that was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer because uh, of bullying. You were mentioning (laughs) how... They might not air They're a, not. a Christmas story. TBS has decided to cancel their annual 24 hours of a Christmas story due to the scenes of bullying in the movie. Yeah. So, I, it, you know, like I said, it's not that these things and these things just have not aged well. And it's us that have changed and people don't want that anymore. I know a Christmas story always had some flack for their portrayal of Asian characters mm-hmm. at the at the very end of the movie. So times are changing, but there's so many radio stations across the country that play Christmas music nonstop. That's why these few stations right here were singled out because they are very few among the ones that started banning the standing up and saying we're going to move the culture forward. Right. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.